Coaches, welcome to Keep Your Pads Down, your podcast for all things defensive line play. And this is episode number 64. Now, if you are a first-time listener to our show here, we release new episodes every Monday. And typically, we're talking technique and strategy as it pertains to the defensive line. But we also step out and welcome guests from other backgrounds and walks of life to discuss topics that are relevant to all coaches and those in leadership positions. So if you have never checked us out before, go back and take a look at our other 63 episodes because you are bound to find something that you like. Uh, let's see, in, in the last couple of months, we, we've had on everyone from a coach who's gone viral on TikTok, uh, a few D1 and D2 defensive line coaches, Tim Kite, uh, who is the culture coach for Ohio State football and the founder of Focus 3. That was a really big episode. And then we've also had on some outstanding high school coaches as well. So take a look, find something you like, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can interact with our show on Twitter at KYPD Podcast or send us an email. And our email address is KYPDpodcast at gmail.com. We love hearing from our listeners and getting feedback from you guys. Well, I know this past week was exciting for us Texas high school coaches because we finally got to welcome our kids back and, and put them through strength and conditioning camp and even some football specific drills. You know, albeit with some pretty strict regulations, but hey. Hey, not complaining. We'll take it. We discussed this last week on uh, Disruption Chat with Coach Noonan, which, by the way, if you're a defensive line coach and you're on Twitter and you want to learn more about coaching the position or building a network with other defensive line coaches, you got to get on uh, and join Disruption Chat on Tuesday nights at 730 Central, hosted by Coach Peter Noonan. He does a great job hosting that. Uh, anyway, in last week's edition of Disruption Chat, Coach Noonan asked coaches about the kinds of drills and skills they focused on last week. They're, they're first week back with their guys, you know, which was the first time that we saw our guys since March. And, and looking over those, I think the common denominator there was that coaches were taking things slowly with their guys and focusing hard on the fundamentals. And I think that's exactly the right approach to take. I know that planning out my individual time last week was, was really difficult because I was so excited and there was so much I wanted to get done. But, you know, taking the time to build that strong foundation by focusing on the fundamentals will, 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 will pay off in the long run. And if you listen to any of the defensive line coaches we've had on here lately, uh, you know that they would say the same thing. So that's not anything groundbreaking, but it was good to see that a lot of the guys that I look to and respect in this profession uh, talking about those things, you know, those fundamental basic things that they were doing with their guys this past week. So keep up the great work, guys. And if you haven't gotten back with your kids this week, make sure you have your plan together and be ready to move slowly with your guys. You know, um, for example, here's what we did this past week here at Pleasant Grove. So uh, we, we built our stance. Uh, we worked on our first step. We did get-offs, and we did some different variations there uh, that I'll probably make a video of and, and share that out with you on our new YouTube page. Uh, more about that here in a second. But uh, we worked six-point and three-point explosion using the goalpost. Uh, and, and then we also walked through our alignments and, and assignments, so like our strength rules. And and we just started uh, working through run block recognition, which, which is a little tricky when you have to be so far apart from each other. But, you know, it was kind of cool. Uh, what it allowed for us to do is, is really focus on our eye discipline, you know, because obviously you can't punch and you can't feel, you know, those guys and, and determine what kind of block you're getting based on uh, your hand placement. So it really uh, allowed us to kind of scale back and slow down and really focus on our eye discipline and make sure our guys are reading their keys. So that was actually a good thing. But uh, anyway, we'll build on that this next week. But but again, I think the key is to take things slowly with your guys and use this time to build 
a really solid base. And I'm saying that as much to me as anybody else because I am the king of wanting to go fast and check things off and, and try to get as much in as I can. And and I really had to fight that urge, especially now when it's been so long since we've been able to, to work with our guys. So anyway, uh, it's it's an exciting time as things are starting to open back up and, it, and it's looking more and more promising uh, as far as getting a season in as we draw closer to the fall. So anyway, uh, definitely some reason for optimism as far as that goes. As I mentioned earlier, we kicked off our brand new YouTube channel with our episode last week with Coach Gower. So if you haven't already subscribed to our channel, make sure you do so and be on the lookout for at least at least one more video uh, that I'll post later in the week. You can find the link to our YouTube channel in the show notes of today's episode. Okay, well today I am honored to welcome onto the podcast a coach, a, a, a man who I greatly respect and admire for his his convictions, his wisdom, and his genuine love and concern for not just the game of football, but for, for others. And, and I'm extremely fortunate to have had the opportunity to talk with him. Today I'm talking with legendary coach Bill Curry. Coach Curry is from College Park, Georgia, and started at center for the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets football team from 1962 to 1964 under legendary coach Bobby Dodd. Following his days at Georgia Tech, Coach Curry was selected as a future draft choice by Vince Lombardi and the Green Bay Packers in the final round of the 1964 NFL Draft. As a rookie, he was an NFL champion for the 1965 Green Bay Packers and again in 1966 with Super Bowl I. In his second year, he was a starting center for quarterback Bart Starr in Green Bay in their 35-10 Super Bowl I victory versus the Kansas City Chiefs. Later in his career, Coach Curry was traded to the Baltimore Colts, coached by the late Don Shula, where he developed into a Pro Bowl center, snapping the ball to Hall of Fame quarterback Johnny Unitas and helping the Colts advance to Super Bowl III, where they were upset by Joe Namath and the New York Jets. And then he also helped the Colts on to a win in Super Bowl V over the Dallas Cowboys. Coach Curry, who at one time served as the president of the NFL Players Association, also played briefly with the Houston Oilers and the Los Angeles Rams before retiring in 1975. Prior to his first head coaching assignment, Coach Curry served as an assistant at Georgia Tech in 1976 and then for three seasons in the NFL from 1977 through 79 as the offensive line coach with the Green Bay Packers. In 1980, Coach Curry returned to his alma mater to become the head coach of the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets, a post he held for seven seasons, winning Atlantic Coast Conference Coach of the Year honors in 1985. In 1987, Coach Curry left Georgia Tech to become the head coach at the University of Alabama, where he posted a record of 26-10 and and won a share of the Southeastern Conference title in 1989 and made bowl appearances every year of his three-year tenure. Coach Curry was honored in 1989 as the SEC Coach of the Year and received the Bobby Dodd Coach of the Year Award. Coach Curry's three-year record of 26-10 and gave him the highest winning percentage among Alabama coaches since Bear Bryant. In 1990, Coach Curry was named the head coach of the Kentucky Wildcats, and in 1993, Coach's Wildcats squad earned a spot in the Peach Bowl, which was Kentucky's first bowl game in nine years. Coach Curry joined ESPN in 1997 as a college football analyst before getting back into coaching in 2008 to start the football program at Georgia State. Coach retired from coaching for good after the 2012 season and currently resides in College Park, Georgia, with his wife of over 50 years, Carolyn. He is an accomplished and highly sought-after public speaker, published author, oh yeah, and a great follower on Twitter. Today, Coach Curry and I start off by talking a little about his life growing up and, and the lessons he learned from his days as a football player, but we also spend much of our time today talking about the current situation in our country surrounding the aftermath of the tragic death of George Floyd, and I asked Coach Curry what a, what a coach's response should be to these tragic events and ask him what he would say to his team about the topic if he were a head coach today. 
We close out our conversation talking about Coach Curry's book entitled 10 Men You Meet in a Huddle, which was first released in 2008 but has since been updated and re-released in 2018. Now, what you're about to hear is, is, is honest, truthful, genuine, and, and powerful. And, and it's a message that all of us should hear, especially in light of the turmoil that is, that is rocking our country right now. You know, Coach Curry just has one of those voices where when you hear it, you, you automatically, you know, you sit up straight, you hang on every word. So, you know, with that being said, fellas, sit up straight, get your eyes up, and soak up these wise words from Coach Bill Curry on episode number 64. KYPD. Coach Curry, let me begin by saying how honored I am to be speaking with you today. I have a ton of respect for you as a coach and as a person, and, and I'm so excited for these guys to get to hear from you today. So, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Ty. I'm equally excited, so um, I appreciate you having me on. Well, Coach, we could devote more than a couple podcast episodes to, to just talking about your life and your time as a football player, your career as a coach. Uh, it's, it is really spectacular and, and just a great story. And, and although that won't be the focus of our conversation today, I do want to spend a few minutes just discussing those things. So we'll start with this. Uh, I've heard you speak a few times and heard you on a few podcasts, and I've heard you talk about how you know growing up, Football was, ne- was, was never something you really wanted to do. I think you said you wanted to play for the Yankees instead. So how does a kid who, who really didn't want to play football to begin with wind up being a 10-year NFL veteran and two-time world champion and, and Division I college football coach? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I do know. That, that, that's, a, that's a tongue-in-cheek answer. When, you, when you're a kid in College Park, Georgia, like uh, most southern towns in those days, this was in the 50s, um, and you start in the high school, and we had a strange high school arrangement. Our, our high, senior high was grades 8 through 12, so you were thrown in with the big boys oh, right yeah. away in whatever sport you went out for. It wasn't a big school, but there were some really good athletes, and there was a, a bunch of tough guys. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I uh, was about 10 years old when we got this funny thing at our house. It had little fuzzy pictures and uh, rabbit ear uh, antennae protruding. You had to put tinfoil on the antenna to make it work. It was called television. And uh, I had never seen one. And I had never, seen, never had one in our home, I should have said. Um, and the first thing I saw was the New York Yankees playing in the World Series. And I ran home every day in early October just to watch Yogi Berra and Mickey Mantle and Whitey Ford and Moose Scarron and all those guys play what I thought was the only sport in the world. And then my buddy and I, I had a little buddy named Ronnie Jackson who hated the Yankees. Uh, we started playing baseball all day every day <laughs> i'm talking about 300 days a year and uh, i didn't even, I, I didn't even watch football but then came high school and if you didn't go out for football you probably weren't going to get a date so i grudgingly went out to this ridiculous sport where you had to actually get in shape and run into people and i didn't like any of that 
So after a few days of running around the track and gagging, and there was no water. It was 105 degrees Fahrenheit. Pads, both practices. Our football coach was a really great guy, but a tough guy, Coach Bill Badgett. Uh, most intimidating presence in the history of the world. I was terrified of him. So I decided, well, I'll just quit. I, that's what most little fat guys do when they're 12 years old, <clears throat> when things are hard. But I had the problem with the quitting, you see, because my father lived at our house. And when Major W.A. Curry saw that you were going out for something, he made one thing clear. If you go out, you're going to stay. You're not going to quit. And he said, I didn't make you go out there, but you're not going to walk off on your teammates. Now, I learned that great lesson from my father because I was stuck out there in this terrible sport. It looked like it was a total waste of time. It ended up being something that I loved uh, more than most things because of the huddle, because of the locker room. And that has become the passion in my life now. All these years later, I'm 77 years old. And I'm still deeply indebted to my father for teaching me that one thing, you don't quit stuff. You don't quit anything. Yeah. And uh, so having to stay out there, I ended up having to find a place to play. And that's another long story I won't bore you with unless you want to hear it. Well, I do want to fast forward to when you went to when you get to Georgia Tech, and and I know that you know you're playing for legendary coach Bobby Dodd, and things didn't go well at first, and 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 to, to say the to, you know to say the least, I guess. Uh, but you had a coach who kind of came up after a practice and put his arm around you and he talked to you, and that really I think flipped the switch for you, and and I think you would credit him with with you know really sparking that love for football within you. So talk about that story and who he was and what he said to you. Well, I had been at Tech for four years. So I was in my fourth year, and I still hadn't played. And we did have a lot of good players, but there was no excuse for that. Um, I had married this wonderful girl, Carolyn Newton, who is still my wife today, 57 and a half years later. God bless her for hanging in there. and I was embarrassed that we, we went to a bowl game. We came to the Blue Bonnet Bowl out in Houston. And um, after the game, my jersey was clean. Yeah. So I went I went to the coaching staff and said, uh, Coach, why am I not playing? And I picked out one of the position coaches, and he said, well, you're not playing because you're not good enough, and you'll never be good enough, so don't worry about it. Just get your education, and don't bother me. Yeah. Well, about two days later, another coach named John Robert Bell, that's the one you're talking about, came to my locker and uh, pulled me aside and looked me in the eye and he said, let me tell you something, Bill. I know you can play. Let's go down to the field early and let's work on your footwork and some of the things that give you trouble. And let's see if we can't find you a place to play. And I played 12 more years. Super Bowls, Pro Bowls, some of the greatest teams that ever performed. And I had the privilege of being in their huddle and in their locker room only because John Robert Bell believed that I could do it. And that's why I think that football coaches in America today and other team sport coaches, not just football, but team sport coaches are the most important people in our nation right now because our nation is so fractured and divided and full of hate. 
that we desperately need those coaches that pull us in the locker room and say, I know you can play, who say you can't hate your teammate because of the color of her skin. You can't hate your teammate because of politics. You can't hate your teammate because of religion. And when, when kids learn those lessons, then they learn to love the people that they thought they were supposed to hate. And they become friends, and it lasts the rest of their life. I'm getting a chance to see that now in my old age, and it just thrills my soul to see guys. I see guys that used to hate each other. Now they're big buddies, and they want to take me out to dinner, and I just have to chuckle. Yeah, you're right, Coach, and that's that's where, really where we're going to spend most of our conversation today, talking about that and the role of the coach, especially uh, in the through the lens of our world right now. Uh, I, I do want to talk about this. It, because, that's just an amazing story because you know if a guy's going to go on and play 12 more years and have a have as a, a solid as NFL career as you did, to, and I, and that's putting it lightly, so, calling your career a solid NFL career, uh, to, to a starter on uh, three teams that made it to a world championship, two-time world champion. You know, usually if you have someone like that on your team in college, you pretty much know it by the first year or two. Uh, so that that is highly unusual that, you know, four years in, you're not playing, but it was just that, that conversation with that coach, the, the fact that you knew now someone believed in you. Uh, was it more of that, I mean, is that is that what drove you from then on that you wanted to uh, never let that guy down or let, let that coach, coach Bell down? Is that kind of what, what, I guess, fueled you the rest of your career? Well, that was part of it, um, but also I was married, and I did not want my girl to sit up there and be embarrassed and have people asking her, why, why is your husband over there on the sideline? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you, you, we are males. We are, we are competitive, and God gave us a great soul, each one of us, but he also gave us com- competitive zeal, and I wanted to compete, and I just had not found that extra gear to use all my abilities, and Coach Bell just dragged it out of me. He didn't just go to practice early. He he, um, employed me in the summer in a legal job, um, and he worked me all summer long on a tennis court or running around a a track or something, and um, it basically changed my whole life. And that's what great coaches do. Uh, He he just was such a special man. Well, you, you're you a man of deep faith who, who is, is strong in his convictions. Uh, who do you credit for instilling those values within you? Well, my parents. Uh, we, we grew up in the church, and um, my father um, uh, was a um, he was a national weightlifting champion, uh, Olympic lifting. And uh, when, he, when he was finishing up college, then he became an infantry officer, and he trained combat troops and hand-to-hand combat and he was a tough angry young man and very hard on his number one son and um to say that we didn't get along when i was four five six years old would be an understatement he was um very difficult and um then some friends of his when he got out of the service he started coaching at what was then georgia military academy it's now Woodward Academy. And he had some buddies uh, that were coaching over there that were just as tough as he was, and they were active Christians. And he said, I don't need any of that God stuff because that's just for weakling stuff. Weak, weak people need God. I don't need God. I'm, I'm strong. I'm tough. And they said, um, well, 
you wouldn't mind uh, us taking a little bill to Sunday school, would you? Uh, don't you want your boy to have some spiritual training? So he allowed me to go to Sunday school. I was like six years old. And I still remember. I thought it was great. Um, <clears throat> then after about six months, he said, what are they teaching my son about that church play? He <laughs> said, if you had any guts, you'd come find out. <laughs> so he, he goes to church, and six months later, he has a powerful conversion experience, and he taught Sunday school. He, he converted to Christ. Before my very eyes, I saw my powerful figure transformed into a loving, kind guy. Now, he's never stopped being competitive. He never stopped being tough, but he became a loving, kind Presbyterian Sunday school teacher. And uh, so I've never been able to question the validity of the gospel. I saw it before my eyes. You know, his response, your dad's response uh, initially to those guys who tried to get him to you know, come to church about, you know, I don't need that God stuff. That's for weaklings. Uh, in your career, just as a coach and as a player, did you find that that was the belief of a lot of guys that you encountered who weren't Christians, that it was, you know, sometimes Christianity can be viewed as, as, as a crutch or as, as, as a weakness? Did you, did you discover that uh, throughout your career? Well, we had all kinds of guys, of course. We had folks from all over the country that had been raised in all different kind of faiths or no faiths at all. Mm-hmm. And so we... We always had a chapel program that was voluntary. You could go if you wanted to. You didn't have to go. And then sometime I'd have some of these hard-nosed guys who thought they were tough as nails, and then they run into calculus at Georgia Tech, and they find <laughs> out they're not tough at all. Uh, they think, you think football's tough. Football's not tough. Calculus is tough. And that's where you get tested. And, then, and they would come to me and say, Coach, what about this faith? stuff. I mean, can you help me? So there's a lot of opportunity there, and it has to be, should be voluntary, and uh, if you handle it that way, then you, uh, God will use you in a thousand different ways. Yeah, it's amazing what pain and discomfort will do for a person without faith. Um, you know, I, I, um, uh, a, a true story. This happened just just a, a couple hours ago. Uh, my son falls in the living room and he's and he's he's hurting his his hurt his leg and you know he's w- looking for whatever he can to to just make the pain stop. And whatever he was getting ready to go do at the time, that that was not important. You know, the most important thing was, what can I do? Help me, you know, with this pain. And I think that that's, you know, God allows us to be in those moments so that we have we don't have anything else to do but reach out to Him. And and um, you know, I think that's I think that's what we're seeing in our country right now. And, and not to get of our head of, head of ourselves here, and say, but but uh, I think that's definitely uh, we have an, an unbelievable opportunity ahead of us right now for those of us who are believers to help those uh, who who are uh, don't have a strong faith. Well, we could, again, like I talked about, we, we could uh, spend a whole podcast talking about your career as a player in the NFL, but I, I want you, if, if you can, to kind of share just one or two of your most memorable moments as a player. I mean, you played for the Packers with, with uh, Bart Starr, snapped the ball to Bart Starr, later went on to the uh, with, with the Colts, uh, Baltimore Colts, and, and played with Johnny Unitas and, and was coached by the late Don Shula. So just share with us, if you can, just a couple of your some of your best memories from your time as a player? Some of my best memories were not on the field. And some of them were on the field. So I'll just do two or three here. Uh, When I got to Green Bay, uh, the Packers were already being called uh, the greatest team of all time. And that was just before they did that three world titles in a row thing. (laughs) 
and um, the defensive captain of the Packers was uh, an African-American named Willie Davis, and I'll let you guess where he's from. He was born in Texarkana, uh, right there where you yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, right here. Uh-huh. He, he attended he attended Grambling State University. He was working on his master's degree in business at the University of Chicago. He was captain of the greatest football team of all time. Now, how's that for shattering the racist stereotype? And I showed up as the last draft choice from College Park, Georgia, Georgia Institute of Technology, and I had never been in a huddle with an African-American person. And Lombardi had a lot of um, great attributes, but his greatest attribute, he doesn't get credit for this, but his greatest attribute is that he would not tolerate racism. If you were a racist, you were out of there, you were off that team in a heartbeat because it would destroy the unity on the team. He didn't care what color your skin was. He cared a lot if you could play football. He cared a lot if you were a decent human being. And so when I know him, when he went there in 1959, there was one African-American player. By the time I got there in the mid-60s, there were 10 on a 40-man roster. I don't think he counted. I really don't. But I'll guarantee you he noticed if you had a divisive attitude. If you tried to divide the team, you were out, gone immediately. And so I didn't want to be one of those guys, but I didn't know how to behave. And I didn't know how to – I was afraid I was going to say something racist. And eventually I did. And I thought, well, those guys, now they'll just injure me and get rid of me. Well, that's not what they did. Uh, They sat me down, talked to me taught me how to communicate, taught me how the things I should say and the things I shouldn't say because I didn't know. Yeah. And uh, most importantly of all, Willie Davis took me under his wing and he said, um, I'm going to get you through this because I think you got a chance to make our team. And when you don't, when, when Nitschke, and I'm supposed to block Ray Nitschke, and that was a joke, <laughs> uh, Nitschke's tearing my head off every single day. And he said, when Nitschke's, destroying your face, busting your face mask, and Lombardi screaming profanity in your face and spitting in your eye, and you don't think you can take it another minute, you come find me, and I'll get you through it. I'll get you through it. We called him Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> He's also, he was also a Hall of Fame player. He's in the NFL Hall of Fame as a defensive end. So you got that kind of power. And that kind of leadership on a team, if you have anything decent in you, if you have a gut in your body, you'll give every ounce of it to the team. And I learned how to do that there because those guys uh, cared about me when I least deserved it. So it was an unexpected, undeserved, unrewarded act of kindness. That's one of my most vivid memories. Um, When I got to um, Baltimore, um, one of the guys that greeted me there, shock, shockingly, was a guy named John Mackey, who is pretty well documented as the greatest tight end of all time. He was from Syracuse University, very sophisticated, president of the NFL Players Association, talked me into being the president after he was president. Now, both of us got run out of the league for our trouble. But that's, <laughs> that's what the league. That's what the league does. Um, but he and his wife Sylvia 
uh, took us in. And again, we learned so much about the African-American experience in about the only way we could have uh, in those days, and that is to have our dear friends invite us over to their house and sit and talk to us about it. And then we would go play together um, on the field. As for Unitas and Star, uh, all I can tell you is, best way I can say it is, if you're around them five minutes, you would follow either one of them into hell and back and never bat an eye. Um, different personalities. Um, they were both very quiet, never said anything on the field except to call the next play. Unitas would stand over next to the door right before we'd go out on the field every Sunday. And the defensive captain would make a big emotional speech about how we're going to tackle. We're going to rush, you know, going to swarm the football and win the game and play great special, all that stuff. And then he would turn, and Unitas was the offensive captain. He'd say, John, you got anything to say? And United said exactly the same thing every single Sunday. I'm talking about hundreds of times now. Here's what he said. Talk's cheap. Let's go play. And he walked out. <laughs> and we would follow him into hell and back. And uh, one particular game against the Bears, the game we had to have, Butkus is over there knocking everybody out and taking the ball away from him. And we had three turnovers in the first four minutes, and we're down 17 to nothing in Baltimore. And Unitas trots off the field after every interception. He never changed expression. And then even on this veteran team, we started looking at each other and said, was there something wrong with him? Does he know what's going on? Yeah. Does, he, does, he, does he get it? Does he know he's getting a skill here? Um, Never changed expression. The last play of the game was an 80-yard touchdown to Mackey to win the game 21-20. to And guess what? Unitas jogged off the field and never changed expression. It was business as usual. We're going to play this game all the way to the end with all our hearts and let the chips fall wherever they fall. We're not going to, we're not going to uh, scream and yell and call each other names. We're just going to do our jobs until we beat the other people, however long it takes us to do that. And when you have those kinds of leaders, Bart Starr was the same way. It's just um, it's just unbelievable. So when you have a well, – what is a great team? What is a great football team? A great football team is a bunch of guys that will get in shape, a bunch of guys who really do love to play, because I eventually learned to play. I learned to love to play. A couple of great leaders, like I've just mentioned, and then a bunch of guys who in the fourth quarter, when they're two minutes on the clock and everybody's dying, and everybody on that, 22 guys really do want to quit. Those guys won't let each other down. That's what a great team is. You look across that huddle, and you you are not letting each other down, and nobody can beat you. You've been on. You've had some great teams. You've had some great experiences. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, 
Yes, sir. Well, I, I'm, I'm curious. Um, you, know, you talked about just just especially with with uh, Johnny Unitas and and just being, you know, kind of hear, hear people say this about quarterbacks like he has no pulse, you know. Um, but but that seems a little bit backwards. You hear what a lot of people talk about today. Well, the quarterback's got to be the vocal leader of the team. He's got to be out front and and talking a lot and directing traffic and all this kind of stuff. But it sounds like with both of those guys that they were more of a calming presence and and led by example and, and just one of those guys that I, maybe it was their work ethic and the way that they prepared each day that you just automatically. Uh, felt drawn to those guys or what was it I guess that that set them apart or that made you want to follow them to hell and back well leader um, whether it's a quarterback or the head coach or anybody that's a leader doesn't necessarily have to be a particular personality type what we have to be is authentic we have to be ourselves if you're going to be the leader you better be yourself because the one thing kids can do and I'm talking about kids from 15 to 38, because NFL players are all kids. They, are, they like to act like they're grown-ups. They're, they're a bunch of kids. I was one of them. Um, we respond to authenticity. You want to know what Shula had? You want to know what Lombardi had? You know what, want to know what Bobby Dodd and John Robert Bell had? They had authenticity. They were real. They told us the truth. They didn't lie. They didn't make up stuff so it would help them look good, ever. They always, always were doing one thing, getting us ready to play, getting us ready to do our work in the classroom, getting us ready to be men, getting us ready to be good husbands. That's what they did, and that's what coaches, that's what coaches across America do today, and that's why I love coaches so much. You're right, Coach. I love it. I love it. I'm, I'm writing all those things down right now. Um, now, Speaking of coaching, so you went on to have a, 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 a highly decorated coaching career. You started out uh, as, as an assistant at Georgia Tech, uh, and it, it, then back to the Packers as an assistant, and then a head coach at Georgia Tech, Alabama, Kentucky, and then uh, took some time off to, to work at ESPN calling college football games before you went back and, and opened up the program at Georgia State. Um, and I know I just glossed over a lot of years and a lot of talking points that we could dive into and discuss, but uh, same thing like with your, with your playing career. Can you tell us just a few of your favorite memories or uh, some of your, your favorite stories from your time as a, as a football coach? Um, my first favorite memory is a perfect indication of what true humility is. And it was something that Bart Starr did. Here's a guy that had won five world titles in seven years. That will never happen again, ever. That will never be duplicated. <clears throat> There are other great quarterbacks, and I love them. I love watching them play. But nobody's going to duplicate that record. Well, I was the offensive line coach, and Zeke Bradkowski was the um, offensive coordinator. We were sitting at Bart's house. And I can't remember what time of year it was, but I just know we were under the gun. Our offense wasn't very good. We were trying to improve it. And it was raining cats and dogs in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And we were at the great Bart Starr's house. He was the head coach and the general manager of the Green Bay Packers. And there was a knock at the door. His wife, Cherry, went to the front door. And um, you could hear her talking to a guy. And uh, this halting voice said, oh, Mrs. Starr, I'm so embarrassed to be doing this. But my father 
worships your husband, and if, if he could just sign this piece of paper, it would it would make a big difference to my dad. Do you think he could do that? And Bart says, Jerry, who is it? Jerry said, well, it's the gentleman that wants you to sign something. So Bart walks to the front door. Zeke and I are rolling our eyes now because <laughs> this guy's got the audacity to yeah. come to the Bart Starr's house. And the uh, the guy was so embarrassed that I thought he was going to pass out. And he said, Coach, I shouldn't be doing this, and I'm so embarrassed, but I just, my dad doesn't have long to live, and he just worships you. And if you could just, just sign this little piece of paper, Bart said, where's your dad? <laughs> the guy said, well, um, he, he's out in the car. Bart said, go get him. He said, no, I couldn't possibly do that. It's just too embarrassing. Bart said, go get him now. Bring him to me. Bart stood there. The old gentleman came in. He's sobbing now. You know, he, he this is not what he envisioned. Right. Bart walks him all through the house, shows him every most valuable player trophy, all the Super Bowl rings, all the pictures of the great teams, all the relics, gets out a beautiful picture, signs it for the gentleman, and he goes back to the front door, and the old man pulled himself together and said, um, Coach Starr, um, my life is complete. I can die in peace now. Thank wow. you. Wow. He walks out. Bart walks back over to Zeke and me and says, okay, where were we? Just like <laughs> nothing, nothing had happened. Yeah. That is the way he treated everybody yeah. all the time, all the time. So when when people have that kind of manner, they don't have to say much. You're going to follow them and you're going to protect them. And, oh, if my man ever hit Bart, it'd just kill me. Uh, and he certainly, he certainly did. My man did hit both of them some. More than you should have. Yeah. Well, what about uh, when you moved on to college? You know, you, again, you coached at at, uh, at Georgia Tech, there at your alma mater, at, at at Alabama, at Kentucky, Georgia State. You know, that's a that's a really unique situation that you're in at Georgia State, starting a program there from the ground up. Uh, what, what do you got from those pro, from those from your times there at those schools? In each of those cases, there was controversy about my hiring, and in each of those cases. I would always love my players just because I admire people that want to take on a tough university and a toughest sport. And if you play football the right way, it's going to test every gut in your body every day, every practice. Because if you don't practice hard, if you don't practice like that, I learned this from Shula, if you don't practice like that, you're not going to play like that. So you lay it all on the line all the time. And the guys that came to those programs and I could talk about the reason for the controversy, but um, there was something going on in each case that caused it to be a difficult decision to make. It wasn't just a snap, easy decision to go to the place where I was. So I have a special admiration and respect for them. And um, there's so many things that happen. Um, I can tell you one thing. And it was confirmed recently. Um, I was very strict about rules. I, I had a system that I had learned from Coach Dodd and some from Coach Lombardi and Shula also, but mostly uh, Coach Dodd's system of 
class attendance and behavior in the community and what you do off the field as well as what you do on the practice field, all those things. Uh, special teams, attention to special teams. Everybody played on all special teams. That's what saved my position, my chance to play in the league, by the way. The fact that Coach Dodd made us all learn to play all special teams. Um, but um, I came to uh, Georgia Tech and uh, I was 17 years old because I had one of those October birthdays. Mm -hmm. So I was not yet 18 years old. And um, this is when I was a student. And this, was, this is when my philosophy was being shaped. And I cut one class. Coach Dodd said, go to every class. So I thought, that was, I thought he was kidding about that. I had chemistry at 8 o'clock in the morning. I couldn't believe that he thought I was going to go to every one of those classes. Well, and besides, there were 100 kids in the class, so there's no way he's going to catch me. So I just slept in. The next day, my name was on the bulletin board. And it said, Bill Curry, report to Grant Field, 5.30 a.m. Wednesday morning in your running gear. <laughs> and they ran me till I could not stand up. And about the 50th time I ran up those West Stands, I decided that chemistry at 8 o'clock in the morning was a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful thing. And that, that, that's a cute little story. But here's what matters. I never cut another class. I never cut another class. So I had a rule. I learned a whole system and a mission from Coach Dodd. So when I got to Alabama, um, I had the same system. And we're getting ready to go to the Sugar Bowl one year. And my academic guys um, came to me and they said, we've got a player, Coach, that, uh, that's been cutting class. We've been getting him up in the morning and walking him to the class the way you told us to. And he's been walking in the classroom building and out the back door and back to the dorm and wow. back in the bed. Wow. I said, go get him. So they did. And I said, um, is this true? He said, yes, sir. I said, I'll tell you what I want you to do. You go pack your things and put them in your car, and you go home, and don't you come back. Wow. And I thought, uh, that's a terrible thing to have to do to a young man, but he had plenty of chances. And um, I, I thought about it through the years, how he must hate me and uh, detest the very thought of my name. And um, at Kentucky, I was fired after seven years, midway through our seventh year. And uh, the next day, we had four more games to play, and left the folks up there wanted me to coach those four games, and I wanted to because we had a great bunch of guys. It, it wasn't their fault. It was it's all it was my doing. My I could have done better, and we would we would have saved that situation, but <clears throat> I didn't. And so. Um, I told my assistant, I don't want to, um, I don't want to hear from anybody. Well, she calls me, she calls in and says, you got a phone call. I said, no, I don't have a phone call. I already told you, and I was not being nice that day. Um, I'm, I'm ashamed of that. I said, I told you, I'm not talking to any. She said, well, this guy's really insistent, and maybe you ought to talk to him. Well, it was the guy that, um, that I had kicked off the team. And she told me who it was, and I thought, oh, no, he's going to laugh out loud for 10 minutes. 
So I pick up the phone and this voice says, Coach, very mature voice. He said, this uh, this call is way too long coming, but I just called. So I thought maybe you'd want to hear this today. Um, I went home when you told me to. I quit drinking. I cleaned up my life. I got a job. I married a wonderful woman. We have two beautiful daughters. We go to Sunday school and church. I have a good job. And I want to thank you for saving my life. So I think that was that was probably the highlight. It, it's not some game that you win, although those are great, too. It's great to win the games you're not expected to win. And this, we remember those things. And I'm not saying that we don't. But when a human life is hanging in the balance, and um, it turns out that the system worked for this young man, then it's... Uh, it's a beautiful thing. No doubt. And and that kind of segues us perfectly into, into really where we want to focus our, a large part of our time today. And that's just talking about, you know, a coach's responsibility and role in, in, in the wake of uh, the social injustice, the racial inequality that that's, that's, um, has been you know, pushed to the forefront in the last several weeks with, with everything that's gone on. Um, so I just want to ask you this, Coach. If you were leading a team today, what would your message be to your assistant coaches, your your support staff, and, and most importantly, your players? Well, I'd get everybody in one room every day, and we would talk about what we just saw. We would force ourselves to see that precious man and every soul is precious god didn't make any soul that wasn't precious he's face down in a gutter with his face in the cigarette butts and the smut and the razor blades and the cops got his knee on his neck for eight minutes and 42 seconds and he's having a nice day he's very casual the guy that pointed this out to me is Coach Popovich. I, I, I read this morning because he said, did you see the guy's face? That was probably the biggest lesson. It was just, wow, I'm getting to do this. And every now and then he would just adjust his knee while he took the life of another human being. We would talk about what that means. You have a sacred responsibility when you're a law enforcement officer. You have a sacred responsibility when you're a coach. And it's very similar because you've got a chance to destroy a kid just by the way you treat him, just by the names you call him, or you've got a chance to build him up. And I was feeling that I had failed that young man when I sent him home. I still feel like I failed him somehow. He doesn't feel that way. I saw him this year, and it was a... It was a great reunion again because he understood the system that it was administered fairly and it was for his benefit. So when we do one thing that takes life away from another human being and we do another thing that gives life, that gives meaning, that gives us a chance to have a wonderful family and to go to Sunday school and church if we want to, Dear God, there's nothing better than that. Mm -hmm. So what, what I would be doing now, we'd be getting in a room every day. And I would want, especially our African-American players, I want you all to tell us how it feels when somebody pulls you over and you know 
that you're getting ready to be mistreated. Because I think I had seen some of that because I was in a car with a couple of my teammates one time, but I don't think most white people have a clue how bad it's been. And so we would listen to each other, and, and a couple of things happened. Number one, it's a good catharsis for the guys that get it out of their system. And number two, it brings the team together because the guys that have not had that experience, the white guys that usually can drive around without fear of being jerked out of the car, um, they get it that that's what's been happening to their buddies, to their teammates. And then, the, the, of course, you have the moments with the guys, the white guys have been abused at, at times, and we, we find that out. So then I would, uh, and I did this at Georgia State, we had police officers come and talk to the squad. Okay, here's how it feels to be a law enforcement officer and have some great big old guy. And you're supposed to you're supposed to somehow uh, get him uh, subdued so that you can do your job as a law enforcement person. And he has definitely broken the law. So they're, they're, we would look at all sides of this and try to educate ourselves about what it's like to be alive in this system at this time in this country and, and hope that that would help everybody deal with it. Coach, I love that because I think what you're doing there is, first of all, you're creating opportunities for open dialogue, and you do have to create those because a lot of times that stuff didn't just that, that didn't just happen, you know, especially within the the confines of a football team. You don't ever, uh, hey guys, we're going to break down this week's opponent. By the way, let's talk about you know what it's like to be pulled over by a police officer if you're a black kid. You you, you don't that yeah. you, unless you create that stuff. And but then what I also like also about that is, you know, a lot of times. Until we walk uh, in someone else's shoes, it's really easy for us to write off things or judge things or say it's this way or it's really not that bad. But when we're able to, uh, you know, see things from someone else's perspective, uh, I, I think that's that that goes a long way in in creating empathy and understanding uh, both ways. I mean, I, I love the idea of having uh, your 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 black players talk about it, and also having a police officer come in and talk about that because you're getting both sides of it. And I think that's what you're doing is you are creating those opportunities for that that productive conversation to take place. Well, it gives the guys the chance to get something off their chest, and then and it allows them to listen to the police officers, and they do. And those same police officers are, are down there at Georgia State, and we did it a little bit at the other places, but we did it a lot at Georgia State because we were we were in the middle of uh, Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, we had to deal with crime and things like that. So I, I already kind of know your answer to this question. I'm going to ask it anyway. What is the responsibility of coaches as far as discussing issues of race and equality with their players? And, you know, we, we've I think we've reached a point where I'm not even asking, should we be talking about it? I'm saying, what what should we be talking about? How should we be handling that? Because I think we're past the point of, well, let's just not even address it and just let's just stick to football. Well, let's, let's take it from a purely selfish standpoint first. If you're not interested in anything, if you're sitting out there and you're, you're a, a veteran football coach or a young hotshot football coach, you say, look, all this nice stuff, Curry, that's great. You can talk about religion, social justice, and all that stuff, but I don't care anything about that, and I'm not going to be one of your leader types. I'm going to win football games. That's what I want to do. So don't tell me about all this stuff. 
Well, if that's all you're interested in, you still better get your guys in that room and you better get them together because they are not going to win for each other if they don't understand each other. That, I promise you, because I've been on those kinds of teams too. And I've coached teams like that when I failed to bring them together enough and they didn't get it in the fourth quarter, we got our butts kicked. That's what, if you got no motive other than just to win the game, you still do this. But your motive ought to be, you're an instructor. You've got a God-given gift. You've got something that that child desperately wants, which is to go play football. All right? And you can get him or her. More and more girls are active in the equipment room and in the training rooms and uh, and all kinds of levels of football all over America, and a few of them are playing now. So you got that. That's another factor in this generation. What they want is is for you to show them what is it going to take to play. Well, you got to learn the ultimate motivation, the ultimate motivation for the great team. And I'm lucky to have played on a bunch of them. We look at each other with a minute and ten on the clock, and we're playing in our 23rd football game in a row. And we got an O-line. We ain't missed a play all year long. Not a play. Not one of us. And every one of us wants to quit. We don't want another Super Bowl ring. We don't want a new contract. We don't want to protect John Unitas or Bart Starr. We want to go home and suck on the oxygen. But we look across that huddle and we look in each other's eyes. (laughs) Man, I can't let you down. And we do everything we do for each other. Because somebody like Don Shula loved us enough to pull us together and make us learn that in training camp, exhibition, regular season, same thing in high school, same thing in midget league. You learn to love your teammates. And when you do that, um, first thing you notice is, is it's a lot harder to beat you. But the thing you notice after 40 years later, which is what I'm enjoying now, is that I hear from my guys Just about every day, just about every day I hear from one of my guys. And I just really, I didn't expect that, and I just cherish it. Yeah. Well, Coach, I want to talk about one of your one of your coaches and, and Coach Lombardi, and you, know, you played for him and the Packers at a time in our country where, you know, there were there were very few African American players on professional football teams. You mentioned there were a few on your team, and and but even none in some cases. But despite this, uh, and and just the the social climate being what it was, even worse than it is today, you said that there was zero prejudice or overt racism when you were playing for Coach Lombardi and the, and the Green Bay Packers. So I want to know, what did he do specifically to create that type of culture, which had to be unusual in that day and time? Well, he was Italian and Catholic, and he had been discriminated against. He had been told, you'll never be a head coach because you got an Italian name. And um, he hated the, the very idea of prejudice. So. Um, you asked me, what would he do if he detected prejudice? He'd just get rid of you. He didn't, he, didn't have a, he didn't have time to have a Sunday school lesson about being nice to your teammate. He just said, get, get lost. Get out. Here's yeah. the airplane ticket. Goodbye. Um, that's what he did. And um, he didn't apologize for it. So you didn't hear any sort of racist stuff. And to have 
75% African-American on her team at that time was um, very liberal. And uh, But I don't, uh, he didn't talk about it much. It's just that you knew you didn't put other people down. And he put everybody down, and that was his, <laughs> he felt like that was his privilege. Yeah. And, um, but it, what it did, it, it did this. Everybody that was in that locker room knew that he was respected. Everybody knew, okay, I've got the respect of my teammates. I'm going to lay it on the line for my buddies. I'll do it. It's the same thing you find in combat with a hardened unit, a unit that's right. been through the fires of combat. Was that something that he talked about a lot in team meetings, about how to treat each other as teammates, or did he just demonstrate that in the way that he treated you and uh, treated you know, treated the rest of the team? Well, he talked a lot about George Patton. Generally, he had coached at West Point. He really loved Earl Blake, who was the legendary West Point coach when West Point was being ranked number one in the, in the country year after year. He loved George Patton. Um, what, of course, Patton's reputation in, in the Battle of the Bulge and um, the charge through Germany to end, basically end the war, uh, which was some superhuman job by those troops. Um, he talked about those things some. He talked about um, the discipline at West Point, but mostly he talked about us. Mostly he talked about, here's what you're going to do. You're going to, every single step, every fault step, every detail, he was on top of it. And you did, he didn't miss anything. And we'd be sitting in the film, and um, he'd say, um, uh, Curry, is that, who's, who's, who's number 50? And I'd say, uh, me? He'd say, who's me? <laughs> he knew who it was. He made yeah. me say it. Yeah. Curry, he'd say, Curry, I'd be, I'd be long snapping for punch. He'd say, that's a terrible long snap. You understand? Uh, yes, sir. But I, at the time, I didn't think it was that bad. <laughs> but he, had, he made it very clear. And to this day, I can see as if I'm in that darkened room. And when I start feeling sorry for myself, I can look across and I can see that those glasses of his and the lights reflecting from that old projector, the 35 millimeter projector, whatever those things were that uh-huh. we used. And I can hear his voice say, suck up your guts. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Do your job. Don't ask questions. Just get the job done over and over and over. So that when we played other teams, that were as good as we were physically. I'm thinking of the Detroit Lions now. The greatest halftime speech I've ever heard was delivered by Vince Lombardi. He hammered us every day. Fatigue makes cowards of us all. Great physical conditioning is vital for victory. Your priorities will be your family, your family, the Green Bay Packers, in that order. That's all you'll think of while you're here. You'll think of nothing else all the time. Those are your priorities. We are not interested in a in um, being good. We're interested in being great. We are going to strive for perfection, and because we're human beings, we're going to fall short. But in striving for perfection, we will achieve excellence, and we will do it every single day. So we're going to play Detroit. 
And they were about the only team in the league that was not intimidated by us. And they had our future Hall of Famers playing across from us, too. And they they were beating the stuffings out of us. At the half, it was 21 to 3. And um, I thought he'd be furious. And I was a rookie. I was terrified of what he was going to do to us in the locker room because he could just cut you to pieces with his rhetoric. And one of the Lion players walked by him and had some nice profane words for him. How do you like that? You've uh, that, uh, and he had a couple. <laughs> yeah, I, words I can't. Yeah, say we can, we can probably fill in say. the gaps. Yeah, and he just keeps on trudging on down to his bench, and I turn around and I look, and I figure God's going to strike that guy dead right now. I, it's going to be fun to watch. Well, God didn't do that, and Lombardi smiled, and I thought that is the craziest thing I've ever seen. Vince Lombardi, the great Vince Lombardi, is smiling because a very famous Detroit Lion player just dog-cussed him right in front of his team and said, how you like that? And it's 21 to 3, so we run off the field into the locker room. The NFL halftime is 12 minutes. And I just, again, I was probably, had tears in my eyes, probably, worried about what he was going to do. Well, he didn't do anything. He didn't show up. He wasn't there. With about 30 seconds left in the half, he steps in the room. He looks around the room and he establishes eye contact with all 40 guys. Here's what he said. Men, we're the Green Bay Packers. He turned around and walked out. Greatest halftime speech I have ever heard. What do you think happened in the second half? <laughs> I'm sure y'all played like I'll your let, hair is on fire. I'll let you guess. Yeah. We ran them we ran them out of the stadium. And why did Lombardi smile? It took me years to figure that out. It haunted me. And I didn't have the guts to ask him. But I finally figured it out. I think I know why he smiled. He smiled because he knew that the Lions players thought the game was over. And he knew his guys, and he knew the game was certainly not over. And when he came in and said what he did, he didn't have to remind us of all those adages because he hammered them into our brains every single day. We already had them down. We knew what to do, and we knew we had to do it. That was what it was like to play for him. Well, that sounds like you know you guys could all sort of draw support from each other because he was an equal opportunity butt chewer is what it sounds like, uh, and, and so that, you know all you guys you know you know no matter what color your skin is or or what church you go to or if you go to church at all or anything like that I mean it, he is an equal opportunity butt chewer so I'm sure that's that that brought you together kind of like what you talked about as soldiers under a hardened general. Uh, you already alluded to these stories, but I do want to circle back and and talk about these because I just thought that they were really unusual but also great lessons for us today. You know, you talked about your teammate, uh, Mar Fleming. When, when you had, you'd said something, you, you know, you're always worried about saying something that was, uh, you know, racist or just, just off color that, that you shouldn't have said uh, because, you, you know, you said you hadn't spent a lot of time around African-Americans and you said something. And I thought his reaction was uh, just just really unusual, uh, especially for the time. So just talk about his reaction to that and, and what, what impact that had on you. Well, Marv is a very polished guy. He's from Los Angeles, and um, 
Um, I think I got lucky on this one because if it was somebody else, they might not have been so kind. But I was sitting at lunch with him, and um, I was trying to impress him and with the fact that I was a forward-thinking Southern guy. Yeah. And I said, you know, Mark, I worked, I worked construction job, and my boss, my boss was a colored guy. He said, your boss was what? I said, he was a colored guy. <laughs> I knew I was in trouble by yeah. this time. Yeah. He said, he said, a colored guy, well, what color was he, Bill? And um, I said, okay, okay, Mark, what am I supposed to say? I don't know. I thought I, was, I thought I was saying the right thing. He said, no, say black guy. Don't say colored guy. If you're talking to us, there's all the difference in the world. Yeah. And, uh, of course, it has evolved now where it's probably better if we say African-American, but that varies with the audience, too. But he, he could have um, slapped me in the mouth. He could have gotten up and walked away from the table. He could have done a lot of things. But instead, he turned it into another act of friendship and helping me to understand that I was in a different world. And I've never forgotten and and I, I I pointed that story out just because I, I think that you know that is a snapshot of the type of culture that 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 you had there with the Packers where you know he had a perfect opportunity and no one really would have blamed him if he would have backhanded you right across the table right there uh, and a lot of guys probably would have done it but you know whether it was whether it was just his his grace for you or he saw that you were trying you know he saw, he could see through what you were trying to do that you were trying to impress him and i mean i think that's just an an, an outstanding story of grace and mercy shown by him to a, to a guy who was ignorant of you know what what things to say what not to say and i think that's just a great story uh of, of how he was able to correct you and, and the impact that it had on you because obviously you're still talking about it today and and you know i liked what you talked what you said about how how Willie Davis who i know had a big impact on you, you know, pulled you aside and and encouraged you and, and took you under his wing. And he talked to he was you know he was sort of the doctor feel good and and I just think those are both great examples of what a team with a dynamic culture should be. And that's that's what you guys had under Coach Lombardi. That's right. And um, great coaches can get that can get that out of um, out of their teams with their own personality. Again, it's being authentic. You can't, I can't go be Vince Lombardi. I can't act like I'm as smart as he was or as, um, how shall I say, as hyperactive as he was. I have to be me and work with the tools that I have. And each one of us uh, needs to think about those things when we're, we can take something from each one of the great coaches, but we can't beat them. Well, Coach, I want to talk about your your book, uh, and, and your, that, that's titled Ten Men You Meet in the Huddle," and it was published. Uh, if, I, if I'm correct, it was back in 2008. Now, I read the book not long after it came out, and really, really enjoyed it. And and that's that's kind of what introduced me to you and your philosophy and your way of way of uh, of coaching. And um, and so I want to talk about some of the things that you mentioned in that book, and and start with just just this idea of the huddle. And, and this book, if, if you haven't read it, coaches, it's, it is a must read. And I'm going to just, this is straight off the description of the book that, I, that I'm going to quote here, but it's equal parts autobiography, character study, leadership manual, and profound philosophy. So just explain that metaphor of the huddle and why that's so relevant for us today. Well, first of all, we brought it back out in 2018. I, I went through and improved it and 
cleaned up some chapters. That most of the most of the stories are the same, but I added a couple, and I added a chapter at the end uh, because of where I thought football was at that time, which was 2017, 18. So be sure. If you buy it, if you get the newer edition, edition because it's 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 just a better book. But I really appreciate the fact that you um, that you enjoyed it and that, and that it's been meaningful to you. Well, that metaphor came to me several years before the book, and it was um, right after the Twin Towers fell. ESPN was trying to decide. Uh, whether to broadcast these games. And the NCAA was trying to decide whether the games were even going to be played. And this is two days after the Twin Towers fell. So September 11th, 2001, obviously the day of the disaster. Uh, September 13th was Thursday, two days later. By then, ESPN had decided, well, whatever happens, we're not putting anybody on airplanes this week. So y'all drive, and they gave us new assignments. So we were given assignments to, that we could drive our cars to. So I lived in North Carolina at the time, and I was driving to Birmingham to broadcast the Alabama-Southern Mississippi game. And I got to Atala, Alabama, and... Um, there was a nice guy behind the counter, and he said, well, Coach, are we going to play these games? I said, well, I don't know, uh, but you might be the first guy in America to find out, first fan in America, because if ESPN calls me on my cell phone while I'm at your station, they're going to tell me whether to go on and do the game or whether to go home. Well, sure enough, they called about three minutes later and said, they're not playing, go home. So I walked back up to him and I said, um, well, I got your answer. We're not playing and I'm heading back. And uh, I'll never forget his reaction because his eyes bulged and his jugular veins stood out. He leaned forward and he said, well, let me tell you something, coach. Come Friday night in Atala, Alabama, we're going to play football because it means a lot to us. <laughs> Wow. So yeah. I go get in my car and driving home. I felt like he had slapped me in the face. And um, I was so distraught and so terribly torn up about all the lives that were lost that I, I started asking God to make this a spiritual exercise. I've done the same thing. I've asked him the same thing recently. Make this a spiritual exercise. Help me to understand why is there all this controversy about the coronavirus? And, and why do we insist on hating each other because of pigmentation? And uh, anyhow, I'm having that kind of prayer, thought, and meditation. And as, as I'm driving, uh, it came to me clear as a bell. Uh, the reason that it's important on Friday night, whether it's in Kerrville, Texas, or Atala, Alabama, or College Park, Georgia, the reason we play is because that's when we huddle. Yeah. That's when our communities huddle. We don't huddle at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, that's for sure. We huddle 
We sitting in the stands, we're in the huddle with those kids. That's our babies out there. And when somebody's child scores a touchdown, we don't stop to see what color the mama is. If we we just grab her and hug her, touchdown. Hey, we just our team just scored. Hooray! Isn't it wonderful? And we pull for each other and we help each other the way we should all day every day. But sadly, those Friday nights go by, and we go back to our separate worlds. And we end up with stuff like we're dealing with this week. But in that huddle, you can't be a racist anymore. Because your teammates will call you out. You can't get in that huddle and look down your nose at somebody because of their national origin. You can't say, I'm not playing with that guy. He's not the right religion. You can't say that anymore. you got to play with whoever's there. And that's what it's like in the real world. That is America. The huddle is a metaphor for this great country and it's what we could be if we would be if god would if we would lean on god's gift to us and truly love each other the way we wish to be loved then we would have that kind of relationship and we'd be a big old giant huddle a big old giant locker room some coaches have said to me, hey, so you know what, Coach, we ain't huddled in six years. I said, okay, <laughs> so if you don't huddle, I'll bet you go in the locker room to get dressed, don't you? Yeah. Okay, when we, when we go in that locker room, what do we find out? We find out that sweat's not the same on everybody, don't we? Yeah, we sure do. We find out, and we can't even get, you can't even get your clothes off in football without your buddy, without your teammate. you got to have the guy to pull your jersey over. You can't get dressed without your buddy. You can't get undressed without your buddy. That's how close we get when we're in that locker room or in that huddle. And it's wonderful and it's magic. And we need to preserve it and we need to keep it going. We need to use it better. Powerful, powerful stuff, Coach, and and uh, you're exactly right. And I, and I think that 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 speaks to what you said at the very beginning about how uh, how important the role of a coach is, especially right now at this time in, in our country. Uh, that that you know us as coaches are going to be the ones who are can, can lead the way in, in healing this nation, and we can start by by doing that with with our own players, with the own kids, with with the kids in our locker room. Uh, I want to talk about uh, something that you that you mentioned in your book, and that's the six common characters of a champion and uh, just can you tell us those and how you developed those and just talk about those well, those are just observations I'm, I'm certainly not a, a, a great scientist but I did go to Georgia Tech and even though I was I started out as a poor student uh, once I got married I became a very good student because she wouldn't let me she wouldn't let me watch television um, so I, I ended up learning um, just scientific observation. So everywhere I would go, I would keep notes. Well, here's what a great team does. Here's what a great player does. Here's what a real leader does. So the six characteristics of a champion, if you really want to be a champion, in my opinion, these are the six things that you must do. And the first one sounds rather obvious, and it is to show up. Well, of course you got to show up. No, that's silly. That's too simple. No, I'm talking about show up on time, every time. Show up early every single time. Not 92% of the time, not 99% of the time, 100% of the time, show up. 
and don't just show up on time. <clears throat> show up ready to work, ready to practice, ready to have a great meeting, ready to play. At Georgia Tech, we had Saturday morning classes, and so there were times that we had calculus and chemistry at 8 o'clock and 9 o'clock on Saturday morning, and we played Alabama at 2 o'clock the same day. Wow. And you better and you better be in those classes under Coach Dodd. So and I'm not bragging or complaining. I'm just telling you that that's, the expectation was so high, and we learned that we had to try to meet that. We didn't always meet it, but we tried. And so when it came time to play that game or to be in the first team meeting and to be dressed and ready to be taped, then you better be there or you weren't going to play. So champions show up, number one. Number two is singleness of purpose. And I learned this from Lombardi. When he showed up, there was nothing else on his mind other than preparing us for victory. The human organism has a couple of ways to focus. We can space focus, which is just to sort of look at a room or look at a body, or we can find focus, which is to zero in on a belt buckle, like if we're trying to make a block on, on a goal line or if we're trying to make a block on a screen we're a big lineman, you don't, you don't just focus on that corner that's coming at you as a, a, an entity. You focus on his belt buckle. And when you find focus, then you have singleness of purpose and you can marshal all your talent and you might just get a piece of that corner and knock him out of the way so that you can get a long run or score a touchdown on the screen. The human organism is the same way. We have to find focus, and that's what great, that's what champions do. Champions have singleness of purpose. There's just one purpose when you walk in that locker room, and it's not to jack around. It's not to be a hero. It's to get ready to go and to give your very best to your teammate. Third characteristic of a champion, champions are unselfish. Bart Starr would do anything for a teammate. And the first time I ever met Bart Starr, first thing he said out of his mouth was, was not, uh, how do you like to hike the ball? Um, it was, would you like to go to church with us tomorrow and have Sunday dinner? And that was the last round draft choice. Think about that for a minute. Uh, champions are unselfish. Willie Davis was unselfish with his time when he spent that time with me, and I was just a struggling rookie. Uh, champions will play any position for the team. If the coach says, okay, you know, we're going to need you to move over and play defense. I know you love to play tight end, but we need you to line up and play defensive end because we've had a couple of injuries. Then a champion jumps in there and does that without complaining, without getting in the back of the locker room and moaning and complaining about having to play defense or whatever it is the coach is asking of you. So a champion is unselfish. Fourth characteristic, the champion is tough. And by tough, I'm not talking just about bending your knees on the goal line. It's certainly not standing over an opponent after you're tackling. I'm talking about tough means that a champion takes responsibility for his performance and does not point fingers at anybody. Ever. A champion takes responsibility for the performance of his unit and does not point fingers at other people. A champion is a leader. A champion is tough because toughness is leadership. Yes, and in, by the way, you want to line up next to a champion on the goal line because you know he's going to do his job. He's going to bend his knees. He's going to get his pads down. He's going to explode in the face of that opposition 
he's going to be he's going to help you to do your job, which is to stop the opponent or to knock it in the end zone. Champions are tough, physically, spiritually, mentally, in every other way. The fifth characteristic of a champion is that a champion is prepared. A champion is smart. Uh, my first week with the Baltimore Colts, uh, the practices were forever. Vince Lombardi's practices were very crisp and they weren't very long. Shula's practices were five hours. <laughs> the two a days were two and a half hours in the morning, two and a half in the afternoon, kicking game in between, and you were out there forever. Pads, both practices, 100 degrees in Westminster, Maryland. And I trudge up the hill, <clears throat> had to stay out for long snapping, and I felt sorry for myself for that. Try to go take a shower, but there was no air conditioning, so you couldn't get your clothes on without them being wet just because the sweating wouldn't stop. Try to rest and dry off a little bit, and so now it's an hour after practice, and I walk back out and look down on the practice field. There's still two guys down there, and what are they doing? Throwing and catching the football. Out cuts, digs, posts, flies. Guess who they are? Johnny Unitas and Raymond Berry. That is how you get in the Hall of Fame. Not by talent. And by the way, Raymond Berry is from Kerrville, Texas. Uh, he's, he was Unitas' Hall of Fame wide receiver. And um, Unitas that year, it was his... It was his 12th year in the league. It was Raymond's 13th year in the league, and they were out practicing twice as hard as everybody else. And uh, Unitas was the most valuable player in the NFL again that year for the third time. You don't become great because you have natural ability. You become great because you work. You're willing to do the things that the opponents are not willing to do. The sixth characteristic is not hard to figure, and it's simply that champions won't quit. There's nothing you can do to make them quit. They will not make excuses and say it's somebody else's fault. They will not fail to show up because they're they hurt their pinky. They're going to get ready, and they're going and they won't they won't give in no matter what you do to them. They're going to fight you till after the last gun, and um, that's why they win so often. Well, Coach, I, uh, I I love those, and I think those are all simple characteristics, but things that, that you're right are, are really non-negotiable when it comes to uh, what it takes to, to be a champion. We'll get you out of here on this question, Coach. Let, let's close out with just uh, maybe one of your favorite stories from your book. I was 16 years old. I was a pencil neck. thought I was going to be pitching for the Yankees, and so my American Legion baseball coach, Mr. Scruggs, um, had a construction company, and he was building some apartments. And uh, he told us, and his son, uh, Bob Jr., we're going to drive out to Shamley, Georgia, and uh, work on this construction job for a dollar an hour, and that was a fortune for us. So to make $40 a week, good gosh, that was, a, that was wonderful. But he said, uh, before we went out there, he said, now, uh, you got a kind of an unusual boss, but you do exactly what he says, and you don't ask him any, you don't ask any stupid questions, and you don't make trouble. You understand, and that was kind of unusual for Mister Scruggs, but I understood. By by the time I pulled up to the job, and our boss walked out, and this is 1959, 
he was African-American. I look at Bob, and I mean, African-Americans weren't supposed to be the boss. And he was the supervisor for the construction job. And Mr. Scruggs had just sung his praises. His name was James Harvey. And he had a kind of a speech impediment. He was not a, a educated man, but he was a brilliant man. Took me about a half hour to figure that out. And um, he had these spotless bib overalls. He had an old baseball hat, kind of turned cockeyed. He had one gold tooth. He had a great smile. He had incredible giant forearms. He said, now, Bill, we're going to carry this this sheetrock over here. So we put we carry the sheetrock. We've been doing that for about a week or two, and there was a a whole bunch of carpenters up there, and, of course, they were all white. They were good old boys from out in the country with rebel flags, and you know know the drill. Uh And there was one water bucket up on the job right next to where the carpenters were framing out the apartments. And one of the guys turned. James was standing next to the water bucket, and Bob and I were standing next to James. And the carpenter said, hey, boy, give me some water. Now, there were two boys standing there, and I was one of them, and Bob was the other one. James was the only person on the whole job that would not have been allowed to drink from the water bucket. But it was clear that he was being ordered to bring some water to this carpenter. But he didn't move. He just stood his ground, folded his arms, those massive forearms, and he smiled. Never stopped smiling. And the guy said, boy, do you hear me? You better get me some water now. You understand? And then James spoke. He said, well, how how old does a man have to be before he's not a boy? I'm 33 years old. Well, everything stopped. The hammering stopped. All the other carpenters stopped. It was like a scene in a Western movie where the cowboy walks in and the piano stops in the bar. Everybody turned and looked at the two. They weren't combatants, but it was obvious that something was going on. The guy looked at James. James never stopped smiling, did not show any disrespect. The guy looked at his hammer, looked at James' forearms, and then he did a miraculous thing. He said, I'm sorry, James, I'll get my own water. So we're walking out across that old red-baked clay, and it's about a 1,000 degrees. And I said, James, I didn't know what had happened, but I knew something had happened. I said, do you, um, are those guys going to hurt you? Are they going to they do something crazy? And he slung his sweaty big old arm around my neck and he said, now, Bill, we ain't going to worry about that. We're just going to go ahead on. We're not going to worry about it. Now, what had just happened was that a, a wonderful man had stood up for his dignity. And, oh, by the way, nobody called him boy the rest of the summer, not once. He risked his life for his personal dignity, and he did it with decorum and with a, with a kind of grace that I could, I was just stunned. And that became his, his we're going to go ahead on, we're not going to worry, worry not about it. That became 
sort of a watchword phrase for my family because I hurried home and told my mom and dad about it. But <clears throat> I don't think that I could have responded to Willie Davis six years later the way I did if I had not had a whole summer with James Harvey, who forced me to learn how to work uh, in another dimension. Uh, a, a great man. I wish I could find him now. I've tried. Well, Coach, that is just a powerful story. I'm sitting here on the edge of my seat, you know, lean forward <laughs> close to my speaker uh, as you tell that story. And, and it's a beautiful story and I think a powerful lesson for us today, especially in light of the, the uh, recent events in our country. And uh, I, I just want to thank you so much for coming on and talking with us and and, and sharing your, your philosophies and your thoughts and, and, and telling us some great stories. And um, I, I just have so much respect for you, Coach, and the things you stand for and appreciate you coming on and sharing with us today. Well, it's an honor to be on with you, Ty, and uh, you keep up the good work. Wow, great stuff from Coach Curry today. Yeah, I just admire him for his conviction and passion and, and frankly, not being afraid to share the things on his mind. And and I really liked what he had to say there at the end uh, about his six characteristics of champions, uh, which again, none of these are original. We've all heard these in some form or fashion before. But, you know, when he goes through those, what was on my mind, at least, was that, you know, uh, not only is he those things, as you can tell just by looking at his career as both a player and a coach, but all the, the greats that he either was coached by. You talk about Bobby Dodd, uh, Vince Lombardi, Don Shula, and some of those guys that he played with, Bart Starr, Johnny United. Willie Davis, all those guys were characterized by these six things, which were, I'll say them again, uh, first of all, that they that you show up and not just show up, but be there on time, ready to work, have a singleness of purpose, unselfish, tough, and I think it's really important for it to go back and, and listen to what he says, what toughness is and what it isn't. They're tough, they're smart, and they're prepared, and they never quit. And so I really enjoyed that, and, and there's so much that I could get into about our conversation today that, that I really appreciated and enjoyed about uh, about what Coach Curry had to say. But uh, anyway, make sure you follow Coach on Twitter. He can be found at Coach Bill Curry. Also, if you want to hear more from him, check out the show notes in today's episode for a link to his website where you can watch clips from some of his speaking engagements. You can see some really awesome photos from his days as a player and as a coach. And you can read more about Coach's life and the things that he stands for uh, all there in his website. Again, you can find that link in the show notes of today's episode. Also in the show notes of today's episode, you can find a link to the updated version of Coach's book, 10 Men You Meet in a Huddle. And if you are looking for a book to get into this summer, Coaches, I would highly recommend that one. Our quote of the day is from Coach Curry, and it is, there are two pains in life, the pain of discipline and the pain of regret. The first is temporary. The other one lasts forever. You alone decide which to endure. And that's a wrap for this episode of KYPD. Now, we'll be back next week and be talking with a coach who is doing some big things to help us all be a little bit smarter by the time this football season rolls around. So looking forward to that one. Be sure to subscribe now and join us again next week for episode number 65. Before we get out of here today, Coach Curry has one more thing he wants to let you know. Let's go ahead and tell him, Coach. Keep your pads down. Bend your knees. Heads up. Pads down. Every single place.